Yeah. And just stumbles upon him walking back with way too many French baguettes. Way too many French baguettes. Like the amount of French baguettes. A suspicious just... amount of French baguettes. Hey everybody, this is David. And welcome to another episode of I Finally Watched. And this is Alon, and I finally watched Michael Clayton. So I really wanted to watch this because it's kind of weird. I didn't have a great memory of this movie. You know, it came out 14 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time as No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood. And I have like a, you know, I had a complete memory of those two movies, even after having not seen them for forever. And but I've watched both of those in, within the last year as well. But the only part of this movie I remember really is the beginning um, going into it. And I've heard a lot of, you know, people talk about it that I follow or that I listen to talk about what a great movie it is. And I was like, I just really need to rewatch it. And so this was obviously a perfect reason to do it. And I can't believe I didn't remember it because honestly, it was so amazing. And it was really kind of cool to almost to rewatch it, but almost watch it for the first time, it felt like, just because it's like I knew kind of what it was about, but I, you know, it was still like seeing it anew. And so I, um, I really loved seeing it again. Alon, what did you think? Uh, so, yeah, this, this movie had me kind of confused at times. I'm just trying to like piece it. I actually like how it doesn't lay it all out, right? It's one of those movies that you just figure it out as, as it, or you, you try to figure out um, as you go along watching it. But I really like this movie. I thought it was really well paced. Um, I had some issues. And the main issue I had with it is that I felt like at times it kept things too vague. Now, don't get me wrong. I totally like a movie that doesn't spell it all out for you, that makes the audience like think. But there was a few things that were like, I felt like um, like B story, like B plot lines that were kept so vague that I was like, well, I'm, are they wanting me to think more into this than I should be? Or is this really like a one-off? Or um, And I'll, I'll go into more examples as we go along. But overall, I really liked the film. Uh, and, and the last like 12 to like 12, 20 minutes of the movie. Um, cause, cause before the last, yeah, I would say the last 20 minutes before the last 20 minutes of the film, I was like, all right, this movie's about to end. I don't know how it's going to end. Um, but I, I wonder how, and then it does. And I was like, all right, cool. Perfect ending. Awesome. No, absolutely. And I think that is, uh, one of the greatest things about this movie is the dialogue, so the script. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There are just several scenes where it's just like, so three different actors got nominated for this movie, Clooney, Tom Wilkinson, and Tilda Swinton. And it's just like when you're handed such great writing, it's almost like, you know, if you're any good at what you do, you should be able to get nominated with it. Tom Wilkinson, though, dude, like, holy he's, he's my favorite part of the movie like i love clooney in it i i guess we can get into it now um but yeah i uh, about tilda swinton but i once again yeah tom wilkinson is so fucking good in this oh um, we're gonna we're gonna get into it with tilda but, swinton but i want to say at the top tilda swinton so she was the only one that won the oscar and 
That's weird. The the only like slight issue I had with this movie was I kind of felt like she won for best uh, supporting actress. And it's like she, her, her, her role was kind of so remote. Like she, she's in it a lot, but not doing a lot. You know what I mean? Like she's like in very kind of tiny bits here and there. Yeah. In the end, she's, she's really great. I, I think it was well-deserved. The only other person that I would have maybe given it to besides her was Amy Ryan from Gone Baby Gone, um, which I don't know if you've seen that one. I have not. But what I, what I do think, and not a crack at Tilda Swinton, is I kind of wish they had given her a little bit more. Like, just developed her character a little bit more. Like, I think that is kind of one of my, like, nitpicks with the movie is that they could have like given her a a scene or two more just kind of like really like delving into like her character why she's doing what she's doing because that part to me was a little bit vague but having said that you you talked about how great the pacing is I don't I don't think there's anything else you could really remove maybe you could you could quibble with that but so in order to in order to add those scenes you have to make the movie longer and I don't necessarily know that that's a great thing but so, I, I will say I would have enjoyed learning a little bit more about her character. Yeah, but what's really beautiful about it is like you kind of know everything you need to know. Like the way they do it, I thought was really good. Um, but let me let me address something before I get into that aspect of it. Is that George Clooney is obviously the main character right? Michael Clayton is the main character of the film. Uh, And then the antagonist would be anything going against Michael Clayton and his like, I guess, quote unquote, mission. Would you say the antagonist? Because I felt like the antagonist at times changed. Like on one hand, it could be Tom Wilkinson's character. On the other hand, it could be Tilda Swinton. But then when it really comes down to to it, it was really like the company U-North. Was like, and then if that was the enemy and the face was the enemy was Tilda Swinton's character, then you could say just her. But her and Michael Clayton didn't really go. I think that's the disconnect. She and him didn't go head to head, like hardly at all during this entire film. Right. It's like in the beginning, she kind of doesn't know who he is and has like a blow off meeting with him. And then in the end, she she gets to know who he is, which is like there's so many scenes where like, Oh, this is fucking the best scene. And then the ending happens and you're like, there's no competition just because of how like, like, well, it wraps up the movie. Um, And and I want to get into it more, but her little thing in the beginning of the film where she, you know, we find her practicing her uh, interview in the, in the mirror. Right. um, As she's getting ready. And that kind of occurs again later on at the end of the movie. Um, I, I, I got a feeling without saying it and without looking too much into her, she's OCD, like probably severely OCD. Yeah, um, you, know what it, you know what it reminded me of? Um, have we done Hannah yet? Yeah. Okay. It reminded me a little bit of the Kate Blanchett character in Hannah. Um, you know, the, yeah. the teeth, like the flossing of the teeth and all that. Um, and, and one thing I'll say too about the Tilda Swinton thing, I, I didn't have the chance to like do a second rewatch of it. And like I said, because I had not a great memory of the overall story, 
if I watched it again, knowing how everything goes, I would probably get a better appreciation for her character being built through the beginning. But right. as you said, the movie starts out vaguely and you learn things as you go along. Like when she calls Mr. Vern, when I first saw that scene, I thought she was asking for drugs. Like I didn't realize she was calling like, you know, a hitman basically. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. I need to talk about that scene when we get to it, but go ahead. Um, the only other nitpick, and it's in the beginning, and so I'll just get to it now just, just so that we can just talk about how awesome the movie is throughout the rest. Um, I didn't think the... Uh, the three horses that he walks over to in the field were explained well. I, um, you know, he, he gets out of his car, he walks over to these three horses on like the top of a hill and then his car explodes. Yeah. And so the horses are this draw, this plot device to get him out of his car. And I was like, what the fuck? I was like, and then when it flashes back four days, I was like, okay, we'll get an explanation of that. And I missed it. Okay. All right, but I, I I know why because I read up on it. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. And it's like, did I miss it? Could have been explained better. And that was actually one of the. I can tell you right now. I don't know if you already knew. There's a in the so when he picks up the the red book, like the Realm and Conquer or Realm and Conquest book that is in Arthur Tom Wilkinson's home that his son recommended to him. It's the same book he has a copy of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. I think as he's slipping through it, there's a picture of like horses. On a hill. I think it might even be like three horses. And it's, like the it's one horse. It's one okay, horse. On and a hill. I think it it was the um symbolism of that that drew him out of his car. Yeah. Right. I, well it was I, like I, the, I caught that. Right. Well, and the um the cinematog the editor of the movie actually wanted to make it three horses, and that had to be like CGI'd in the one horse, but he wanted to make it three just so like the connection would be easier. But I do think that's like an easy thing to miss. Yeah. Like, okay, so so the way you connect it, right, is that in the beginning, he's drawn to these three horses on a hill. Um, and then you're like, okay, that was weird. And then at the end of the movie, as you watch the film, um, God, I, I actually have so many more questions than I originally thought I had, but we're, we're going to go through them. Um, but at the, towards the end of the movie, he finds the book, he flips through the book and he finds a, like a picture, a drawing of a horse on a hill in the book. And then when it goes back to that, you're like, okay, he's drawn to those horses because he saw it in the book and he probably thought it was a sign from the universe or God or whatever. Um, and ultimately it saved his life, which is kind of, you know, symbolically beautiful in, in that sort of way Um, no no i I get all that but unless unless you see the five millisecond shot of him opening the book and flipping it and seeing the horse in the book then you're just kind of like okay he likes horses right that's what i'm saying I, i feel like they you know a lot of times we don't want things you and i talk about not wanting things to be dumbed down and made so obvious just for everyone to get it but I think that is one that was like a little like opaque and things that you could, you could miss. But if you, if you even miss it, I think it's just the fact that it gets him out of his, I like, I don't think you're really missing anything that, that importance plot wise. No, you're not missing it. It's like, okay, something drew him out, but it's also one of these things where it's like, all right, well, why would the horses draw him out? Well, I mean, like knows, everyone knows that Michael Clayton is a very, uh, is a, is a horse girl. It's a brony. Well, if if he had, if he had uh, blown all his money with his like drug, <laughs> drug brother on the horses, horses. 
<laughs> no, if he had blown all his money on his brother's like horse farm scheme or yeah, like at a at the track, like if right. he was, you know, if he was a he didn't lose his money in poker and like gambling on games, but like lost them on the horses, then it might have made a little more sense. He like walks over like, oh, these things. <laughs> bet it on the bet the house on the ponies. Um yeah, or you know what I also connected it to is that the whole fight with the farm, because it was like this this lawsuit that his firm was having with this farm land, right? Right. And I thought, oh, maybe he traveled all the way out to the farmland. Or I was like, no, that doesn't make sense because he stayed in like the state of New York. Um, but then maybe like the horses were a symbolism for farm, the farmland. That's how that's how you could also take it. Honestly, if you missed it, you could just take the horses as like the symbolism for the farmland that was ultimately lost due to the company. I mean, there's farmland in upstate New York. No, I, no, I know. But what I'm saying is that that could, you could have connected it that way if you missed no, the no, picture and that's, of the horses. Before like reading into it, that's what I was. I was like, okay, that, that kind of would make sense too, that it's just like this natural, beautiful thing that like he's helping destroy in his own way. Exactly. Um, so I guess we can just move to the top. And when I watched like the first five minutes of this, I called you and I was like, cause you know, we both watched this yesterday and I was like, we might need to watch this twice. Cause the first five minutes were very like confusing. Yeah. Um, and confusing because it connects later. Like it doesn't, it doesn't open up with five minutes of exposition, which is, I like, I like that in a film that I, it can be done well, but I, I like it done this way. Um, but I think after that, especially because I had a little bit of an idea of what the movie is about, it, it clears up very quickly. But the Tom Wilkinson speech to open things up is really cool. Yeah. It's, um, I could follow it because I knew kind of what the movie was about. I think if you went into it blind, um, you may not have. Did, did you go into this blind or did you read like a little bit about what it was about? Completely and utterly blind. Okay. So I, I think that that part is a really cool speech that you can appreciate even if you don't know what the hell he's talking about. Um, but that leads into one of kind of the first really like great dialogue moments of the New York times reporter talking to Barry and then talking to Marty. Yeah. Um, and I love when he's like, you're 20 minutes past your deadline. So either you're fishing for a story or you're trying to avoid a retraction, you know, either way, good luck. Right. Uh, such a fucking good line. And I think Marty's a character I definitely want to talk about like, more as we go along because i had like a a theory about him that i thought was going to prove out and i still think might have been kind of something the director was pointing at but um sydney pollock who plays marty does like such an understated job that i would have been like really happy if he had been nominated for supporting actor too you know he like produced the movie no he did and actually so tony gilroy is the director who he also wrote this um and he's wrote several great things he wrote I think all four of the Bourne films and he directed the Jeremy Renner, uh, the Bourne legacy film. Um, oh, well, and, there, there was his job. I liked the Jeremy Renner Bourne legacy movie. It was, um, it was he fine. also wrote Rogue One. Okay. That was dope. Uh, yeah. Which is really weird. It's like kind of, it's, it's, it's like a diff definitely like a different type of movie. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's done, yeah, he's done a ton of writing. This was his first directing and, um, I think he brought Sidney Pollock on to produce and Sidney Pollock was like, I want to direct this. And Tony was like, Tony Gilroy was like, I'm, I'm saving this one for me. <laughs> and uh, it's a pretty good, like first, this is the first thing he's ever directed. You know, obviously he was writing stuff for, for a while. Um, like he wrote the devil's advocate, 
he wrote Duplicity. He al- he also wrote the movie Beirut, which is the John Hamm movie that uh, Taylor really wants all three of us to watch. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, he's obviously a very fucking talented dude. But, yeah, he, I think it was obviously a very smart move to be like, no, no, like this one's, uh, this one's for me. Um, when did you start to catch on as to what, like, what the movie was, was going for? Pretty, pretty quickly. Like, I, I feel like I was never behind on what the movie was going for. As soon as it revealed, like, like, you know, Tom Wilkinson stripping down, um, right. us watching the video, like, POV of, of the film. And then his like talk with George Clooney, his talk with Michael Clayton about, you know, he, him working this case and putting all his entire life into this case. And then finding out that basically he's feels like he's working for the wrong side. Um, I made the connection pretty quickly. It's like, all right, so that must be the company that Tilda Swinton's working for. Therefore the whole movie must be revolved around like bringing this company down. Um, all right, cool, let's go. And then from there, I was like, pretty much like, okay, I know what this movie is about. It's like espionage and and and, um, and then Michael Clayton is going to kind of be in the middle of all of this. Yeah, it's almost like a, if it were like government people, it'd be like a spy movie, really. Um, and you get introduced to Tilda Swinton, who plays Karen Crowder, like just in the bathroom, sweating profu- profusely. And I was like, is this, you know, because I, I once again didn't have a great memory. I was like, is this drugs? Is this a panic attack? And really, once you—it's the stress of like what she's done, right? Um, I because I I haven't done any research going into the movie. Um, I just saw like a, a couple of um, screenshots or like the title, um, the poster for the film, and I really thought that that was Jodie Foster. <laughs> Because her character is dressed exactly how Jodie Foster's character dresses in every movie that Jodie Foster is in. And then I... I her Are you actual, talking Inside Man? This sounds like Inside Man, Jodie I'm talk, Foster. I'm talking about Science of the Lamb. I'm talking about Inside Man. I'm talking about Safe, ha- safe Room. I'm talking about... Safe Room, she's at home, though. She's dressed in a freaking it's blouse. What? It's not Safe Room, is it? Safe House. I don't know. It's, safe. it's with Kristen Stewart. I know which one you're talking about. Okay, well, listen. The whole thing is, is that then finally when you see her, and I was like, oh, no, that's not Jodie Foster. That's Swinton. Um, but yeah, she's, she's... So, okay, let's break it down, right? Here's on the parts that I'm confused about. Um, first of all, what was Tom Wilkinson's speech about? Uh it was about him finally realizing that what he's been doing is evil. Like he's been representing evil people and that's basically been potentially his whole life as an attorney, but specifically this last six years, um, which I want to get into his speech uh, when he gets picked up from the jail by Michael Clayton. But that's what the speech is about is like, I've been, he's, he talks about this rebirth and how like, this law firm is this evil company that has spit him out and it's sort of this rebirth of realization that like I've been fucking doing horrible things by representing these people. Um, 
and so that's basically what the speech is about is just him finally coming to the realization of how wrong he has been how evil everything they're they're doing is and like how he needs to he can't go back to the old way he can't go back to just doing his job so was it completely metaphorical about him like standing in the middle of traffic the light goes green and then he thinks he's going to get run over and he is it was that just metaphorical or was he about to get hit by a car or am i looking too much into this i think that part happened i think the realization hit him then and he sort of froze in the middle of the street but the paralegal or first year attorney that was with him or secretary or whatever she freaked out and sort of brought him back and he even says like i realized from then on that that wasn't the time but the time was going to come soon and then the time came when he stripped naked in deposition got it um cool um the next thing before you you know come with your questions whenever the introduction to clooney is pretty cool um you get the little tidbit about his restaurant going under or, you know, alludes to it. And then you find out later. Um, did you know the guy talking shit to him at the poker table? I assume you didn't know who that was. Nope. So it's Brian Koppelman who wrote rounders and oceans 13. Oh, look at that. Right. Um, I think it's a really cool scene. I do like the call that he gets um, as he's walking to his car. I was like, when that happens, the first time you see the movie, and I don't know if you felt this way, but I'm like, all right, because I know he's a fixer. Going into it, I knew he was a fixer. Maybe you didn't. But if you go into it knowing he's a fixer, I'm like, he's about to go in and show off, right? He's right. about to go into this guy's house and be like, this is the fucking deal, and this is how you're going to get out of this. And for him to just be like, I don't know what he told you. I'm not a miracle worker. I'm going to find you an attorney that can do it. But he's like, you fucked up because this is the favorite thing for cops to deal with because they can get it. They can get it over so quickly. He's like, so your best bet is to like get a criminal attorney for the long haul. Um, that scene is so cool. Even with not having like the badass moment of George Clooney, being like this is how you fix it. You do this, 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 and this, and we're good. You know what I mean? Right. Because I mean, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it hasn't been the flashback or the, we're still in like quote unquote present time at that point. And so when it comes back to that scene at the end of the movie and you realize all the shit he had to go through in the prior week, you're like, this is honestly the very least of his concern. And you understand why he's putting in the most minimum effort into it. Right. But for it to still come off as kind of badass is kind of cool. Now here's my biggest question. Um, I think I missed the little title card that was like four days earlier. Okay. Was, was there a title card like that? Yeah. Um, right after he drives away from this house and he stops and walks up to the horses and his car explodes, it kind of fades and it says four days earlier. I, I missed that. And I, and I was like kind of confused because I was like, okay, so he's just going to, somehow he has his car that just blew up uh, in the neck in the very next scene and he's picking up his kid. Um, so that's all fine. I guess he's we're just going to ignore that. And then when it comes back at the end of the movie, I was like, Oh, they, they played the end of the movie at the beginning of the movie. I get it now. It's one of those films. And I caught they, up pretty, pretty quickly from there, but I just totally missed the, the title card. They even dumbed it down for you and you still missed it. I know. But hey, let's talk about his kid for a second, because 
Um, I love that every time you get introduced, at least the first two times you get introduced to the kid, it's this. It's like the same shot, but a different shot of his room and a bunch of toys, like panning over it. And it's like, if you didn't, if you ever forgot that he was a child, here's a quick <laughs> reminder that this is a little boy. You know. <laughs> I didn't notice that. What What I did notice is like the the difference in the way like Clayton looks compared to his ex-wife and you know her new husband yeah. um just like it's like a kind of a lower middle class apartment maybe yeah or I don't know it may have been a nicer apartment based no, they're, on like they're poor what we, yeah I what we saw with the election <laughs> that seemed like a nice area um but then you know compared to like the way Michael Clayton looks but, but then as you find out he like has no fucking money um, or, so yeah, just, I mean, does he even have a house? Did do we ever see Michael Clayton's apartment? Probably no. No, I mean, because this is like what a a four day period where he is constantly on the move. Um, can barely take like a couple hours to go to his dad's birthday party. Um, and then you get to see the the restaurant stuff, which is 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 cool, and also um, the most uninteresting part of the entire movie. It is. I mean, it's definitely a plot device, you know, and it's it it does show at least a little bit that he is like a good person because you need to he's doing he's doing these things that are necessitate doing things that aren't very good. Um, But he could easily sell out his brother and you find out throughout the movie that his brother, his brother's wife who took him back, his brother's kids, you know, his brother's name is Timmy. Um, are all just freaked the fuck out that like they're gonna you know have someone come after them for this money because apparently they dealt with like loan sharks with this restaurant like people who will like come after you which is just beyond me like why he thought he needed to do it that way but especially with half of his family being cops and the other half of his family being lawyers you would think that they wouldn't do something like that I, I don't know um but the fact that he's willing to just take on the debt on his own and he's like, I'm not telling you where Timmy is like, this is on me. Um, you know, is, is even as his brother is like apparently knocked up a cokehead, uh, he's like, I'm not, I'm not giving you anything. And I think that that is just to establish a little bit that he is a good guy. So his brother, you're talking about his drug addict brother, not his cop brother, right? Correct. Okay. So here's my ultimate question. The thing that exactly what I'm talking about when I'm like, I feel like they're keeping B plot points in this film vague enough for us to just not understand it. His kid is not really his kid, right? Henry? Right. That's his kid. You sure? Yeah. They really made it feel like, remember when when the, the drugged up brother comes at the party like as they're leaving and is like trying to talk to henry and he's like yeah not in front of the kid and he's like just not really having anything to do with him Mm -hmm. and then he sits in the car with henry like pulls off to the side of the road and like hey you know i i understand why you like your uncle he's like he calls you buddy or champion or whatever but he's not the type of guy you want to be and you're not going to be that type of guy and stuff like that yeah it's kind of a weird conversation to have to your kid that you're not going to turn out like your uncle, right? So when they mentioned that he knocked up a cokehead, I thought maybe he knocked up a cokehead and Michael couldn't deal with his brother raising a kid and he didn't want him to be lost in the care system. So he adopted him. And I thought that was like his brother's kid that he just took on as his own. 
that's what it really felt like that conversation was about. Yeah, that's no. So he had knocked up a cokehead recently, like within the last few months to a year. I, I um, thought I really cracked the case here, David. No, we're going to have something else where I think I cracked the case. And uh, I'm really going to need your, your input on that. But no, this you did not. You got wrong. I think him telling his son that and using his brother is kind of like a little bit of projection. Because yeah, Timmy is a piece of shit that really fucked him over. But also, Michael put in this money with someone he shouldn't have trusted. And as he tells Marty, uh, Sidney Pollock later, like, I'm, I've been at this for what? I've been at this firm for what, 12 years? And I have nothing to show for it. I have no equity. I'm broke. Um, and I owe 75K. I have nothing to my name. So he's kind of like no better than Timmy. You know what I mean? He's got like a nicer job and people respect him. But he's not he's not doing great. And so it's almost, he's telling his son, like, you're not going to be like me either. You're going to be better than me. Yeah. I, I, okay, fine. You cracked the case. I see that. I see that. Um, shoot. Hey, when he goes and asks, uh, the favor from his cop brother, what does he, what's that green piece of paper? It's the, um, he's going into Arthur's apartment. It's been sealed with the same green piece of paper. So he breaks the seal, and then when he leaves undiscovered, he was going to take off the old green piece of paper and put a new fresh one uh, on there. Okay. And that's why it's such a big deal, because his, his, the only way he would have gotten that is from his brother. I got you. Okay. Um, I thought the montage of him like taking fixer calls in an office was kind of funny, because when you usually have these like fixer movies, you imagine them just like always on the road, like stopping at people's, but the fact that he's just like in an office, like a nine to five job answering calls, I thought was funny. Yeah. Um, and then we get the information about the potential merger, which is also just kind of another plot point to sort of put Marty and the firm between a rock and a hard place. Right. Um, and then we get the Tilda's general counsel of U North and her, I think we may have already gotten her weird speaking in the mirror thing. Um, we did at that point. Um, but basically from then now we're, we're starting to learn about Arthur. Yeah, we're, we're no. Yeah. At this point we're with Tom Wilkinson. We find out he, he stripped down naked in a depot room in Milwaukee. Um, and this is where we get the speech back as um, you know, the speech has happened as Michael's on a plane, we're hearing it again, but the speech is happening like as Michael gets to Tom Wilkinson in like a jail cell in uh, Milwaukee or like a room. There's a lot of like audio overlap in this movie, like as an editing style. And I think it really works. Like I, I feel like that's a really effective way to get a lot of cool information through. Not, well, not only that, we talked about how tight of a movie this is, and that's another way to do it, right? Because you would have had to have the Michael getting on the plane scene regardless, so why not have some of the dialogue play over that? So you, you get the establishing shots, you get the, like, the connective tissue of this is what part we're in the movie again, this is that speech coming again, but then you're not wasting time playing it again. You get to like a new part of the speech. Um, so that's, that's my question. So that speech that we hear at the beginning by Tom Wilkinson, that is what he has been telling George Clooney in the jail. Yes. Okay. And we're just coming at it from a different point of the same speech. 
Right. So right after, like, as he's listening, as you're hearing it on the plane, that part takes place. And then it sort of puts us right back in at the end of the speech at like the end of what we had already heard. Like when we see Tom Wilkinson, um, which is honestly the better part of the speech is like, once we see Tom Wilkinson, um, like, I love how he goes through. He's like six years of my life, like 12% of my life. I've been scheming, stalling, screaming, and like goes through like the, my favorite part is like the 30,000 billable hours and how Marty comes in and he go, they go to the whorehouse in Chelsea and like just the way he describes it in such detail. Um, the two Lithuanian redheads, like all that is so amazing. Yeah. Um, and he's <laughs> my favorite part. You're a manic, de- you know, George Clooney's like, you're a manic depressive. And he comes back. No, I'm not. I'm Shiva, the God of death. <laughs> <laughs> and that 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 even that comes back uh no yeah it, it does uh, in a great way <laughs> and yeah. he, 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 you know tom Wilkinson also talks about he's like i've spent all this time defending one carcinogenic molecule he's like i'm focused on this one minute thing that has just killed people and i'm defending it you know what i mean i'm defending something that has killed people and it's like you know, how can I, how can I do this anymore? And, you know, you get the fact that he's been on pills and Michael's like, listen, if you take these pills and you still have these thoughts, then you know, they're real, which is, you know, kind of a a valid point. I just want to say how, like, this movie came out in what, 2006? 2007. 2007. But probably shot in 2006, probably even written like earlier. Right. Sure. Um, the leaps and bound, like how far ahead of this movie it is and the way it treats mental illness to like, I would even say in the last like 14, 15 years, how we as a society have treated me- mental illness like much more respectably now. Like, I feel like we kind of like shunned it for so long and, and only maybe in the last five years, we've actually like become more aware of it as, as a real thing. Um, but I feel like, <laughs> while everyone is just kind of shitting on Arthur, it's like, oh, he'll just get over it, or oh, he has to be like, he's crazy, and there's nothing you can do. I feel like Michael Clayton was always like the 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 one who was like, no, 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 we need to get him some help, and he needs to be like stable, and like it's a chemical imbalance, and he's the only one who seems to like actually understand this in the entire film. And I was like, wow, this is like a decade ahead of its time, you know. Yeah, I mean, one, that's also his job, but two, you can tell that it's been established that they're friends. Yeah. Um, that he really likes Arthur. Um, yeah. And so I, I do like that that's set up and that's sort of the end of that scene. Um, the video is really hard to watch and we get to see it. <laughs> yeah. My favorite part of that is the dude with one line who after the video cuts out because the lawyers for you North are literally ripping the video out. Like you can tell that's what's happening. Cause her attorney's like, no fucking film this. This is great. And the attorneys for you North are literally ripping the camera out of the cord. So it stops filming. And the guy that's just like, I guess that's it. <laughs> like such a great fucking line. It's his only like Bravo. Um, <laughs> and then we get the, this is like a little bit of exposition, but she, she's asking like who Michael Clayton is and her like, computer whiz person with her like explains everything like oh this is where he went to school father's a cop 
he was at the state attorney's office for a while, and now he's been at this firm for 12 years. And they come um, to the conclusion that, like, oh, he's been at the firm, but so he's a partner. She's like, yeah, no, he's he's not a partner. And they found that senior senior counsel. And she's like, well, what the fuck can he possibly do? Oh yeah, he's in wills and trusts. Yes, wills and trusts. <laughs> just get, I, I love the like the fake like we're like oh we'll just put him in something that doesn't matter. He's in wills and trusts. Yeah. And that um, shot of that shot of George Clooney when when you hear that he's like it's that audio overlap editing style like wills and trusts and he's just sitting there in the office. Like, I thought that was a cool shot. No, absolutely. The next thing that's pretty cool is him going into like the room of young lawyers, which first of all, like, why are these the people in charge of a deposition in a $3 billion case? I found that a little bit odd. Um, It's like 20 people. Yeah, but they're all super young. Like these are all like attorneys within their first three to five years. Yeah, but there's partners in there. There's like senior partners that are didn't look like it and the one woman who says she's in charge of it would like look the youngest yeah she's like i'm the one handling it and i was like that part seems a little odd but it's oh no 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 you're talking about when he walks into like what looks like a hotel room yeah yeah with all the young people and he's like he's like he's like (laughs) keep this shit to yourself because you don't want to be the one who's in front of this story like explaining it to people i thought i thought you were talking about when he walks into the office and everyone's like like shredding thing like there's like 40 people in the office Oh, well, no, he doesn't walk. Oh, that's like way towards the end. I think that's with the merger part. No, yeah, this is like, yeah, the group of young attorneys. And he's like, why the fuck was Arthur here? And then we're like, we don't know. He just showed up. Um, he's not, you know, we were handling it. And he, okay, and, yeah, know, they were, they were incredible, incredibly young. Uh, and I like that, she, you know, she's like, well, I don't know if we can continue with the depots. He's like, if they don't want to continue with the depots, that's fine. But you act like everything's fucking normal. And then he's like, where's the briefcase? And they're like, oh, we don't know. Someone else took it. Yeah. Um, Arthur talking to Henry on the phone was pretty funny too. Like, obviously, I thought like a, I thought the movie act- was getting. I thought the movie was about to get real dark at that moment. <laughs> I I was like, oh my god, he's having like relations with this little boy, and he's like a sexual pervert. And it's like, how does Michael not know about this relationship that his friend is having with his son? And I was like, is this going to turn into like a, a child uh, like molestation movie? And I was like, my mind was like going like, holy crap. And then it was like, oh, he tried to call his dad and Tom Wilkinson just so happened to pick up. All right, cool. I'm like, <laughs> that's way more easier to digest. No, absolutely. Um, and then Michael Clayton meets Karen Crowder, Tilda Swinton. And yeah. she is not very impressed and walks away very quickly. And like, I'm going to call Marty. And he's like, oh, I know you are. Um, which is like their, what, their first interaction out of two? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like basically, you know, I don't even think that scene lasted five minutes. Um, and she dismisses him like as a joke, which is really like great because at the end, he is the only thing that is in the way with her, between what she wants um and is her like complete downfall so that's <laughs> that's great i can't wait for us to get into that um but then i i'm so confused what they meet up she dismisses him what happens next um oh, they're really- they're like basically the whole movie's on the hunt for our arthur right well yeah there's a few scenes here like there's some very like cutting back and forth so arthur's in the hotel room and he tells 
he tells uh, Michael Clayton, like, hey, you're just a janitor. Is that what you want to be? Uh, then next, Tilda Swinton, like, finds Memo 229 that basically fucks their entire case. Right. Um, showing that they knew about that this would kill people and they chose to just let it happen. Um, and that's when she calls Mr. Vern and you're like, what, what is this for? Um, Don told her to call. Uh, I, I like the way that Don Jeffries is kept super vague on this movie. Like, because Tilda Swinton is clearly doing all the things he would do, right? It's not like we think she's doing things that he would disapprove of and that's why she's keeping it from him. It's really just because it's like, this is her job and it falls on her. But these are all like the evil things that he would just as easily do if it was still his job, right? Yeah. Um, oh yeah, and we get the Mr. Vern canceling his golf game like after she, uh, she calls him. Um, and then we, the next is the, Marta, the, the Marty and uh, the Tilda meeting. And she shows him this and he's like, holy shit, this, the memo 229, you know how it's signed by Don. I, the, here's the issue that I have in it. I had a problem with this part of the movie is that I'm not a lawyer, David. Um, so it was kind of hard for me to kind of keep up with. All right. So Don signs this memo, but why is that important? I was just trying to understand like the, heaviness of things to come so what it means is there this memo says that this chemical will kill people they know it will kill people and so the question is how much would it cost to redesign this their their product to remove this chemical and not kill people versus just paying when someone dies that's kind of the crux of the movie is that you North decided, and this is actually based off a real case, according to George Clooney, um, the Ford Pinto case. I don't know. Well, Pinto was a car that was known for blowing up if it got hit. <laughs> um, but so what's important is there's this memo that says it may cost us more to fix this chemical than it would be just to pay for people dying. And it was signed by their general counsel meaning that the top of top peoples and their legal team knew and decided we'll just let people die because this memo was really old. So okay. it's like it wasn't, it was written by some one small scientist in U North, but it made it all the way up. And so now U North can't deny knowing that they could have prevented 486 deaths. So that's why it's important. Got it. Um, that makes sense. I, my next favorite part is when Marty and Barry, after they found that memo and they're going through Arthur's office, Barry's like, we need to, uh, we need to get him committed. And uh, Michael, you know, uh, Michael's like, well, we can't get him committed. New York has like some of the toughest laws. And Barry says something to me. He's like, I'm not arguing with you, Barry. I'm telling you how it is. Such a fucking good line. I also like the line where he's like, well, get us a lawyer that would know how to do this. And he's like, I know who that is. Arthur's a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, who's our, yeah. He's like, Marty's like, who's our top lawyer in this? He's like, I know who it is. It's Arthur. And that like the scene where Arthur comes back at him, we'll talk about in a minute is so fucking good too. Which one? Um, We'll talk about it now. He like, Michael Clayton is searching for Arthur throughout the city and then like is searching with his son and just stumbles upon him walking back with 
Way too many French baguettes. Way too many French baguettes. Like the amount of French baguettes. A suspicious just... amount of French baguettes. Uh, <laughs> but most of them were accounted for later on in the movie. Like, so he wasn't doing anything too weird with them. Um, and he, you know, they're talking and they're talking. And then Arthur's like, you know, hey, if your game plan was to get me committed, you should have fucking kept me in Milwaukee where there was evidence of me accosting someone, stripping naked and a criminal record. But you ain't got shit in New York. Yeah, here I don't have anything. So good fucking luck. He's like, and if you want to see me in in court, you'll see me in court. Like he was like, which what's so great about that scene is this whole time as the audience, as Michael, you're wondering like, is this guy insane? And then right there, he's proven to you, no, he's not insane. Right. Because if he's able to rattle that off still and tell you like, I will fuck you up, legally speaking then you know like okay he's not he ha- he's not crazy a scene that we kind of missed that kind of happened a while ago was um in the hotel room when when uh michael has arthur like in the bathroom and you hear the water running and he locks the door he like padlocks the door and then michael becomes suspicious breaks down the door and realizes he's just escaped uh the first time you watched this did you think that he killed himself in the bathroom I was, I thought that was a possibility. Um, and then I thought as he's running to the, I thought they may have been like not on the first floor or not connected to like a balcony. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. And then you, as he's running outside, so I thought he might've jumped. Um, but then yeah, none of that. And obviously that's, it's obvious at that at this point, but yeah, no, that is a thought I had. So I thought I really liked that scene because not only did you hear the water running and you think, Oh, maybe he like hung himself or drowned himself or, cut himself or jumped um but that kind of pays off that's kind of like oh what's the what's the film term i'm looking for um foreshadowing foreshadow thank you very much uh foreshadowing of what happens later to him which i thought was kind of cool like film wise you know no yeah yeah the the suicide to like a, a fake suicide and i actually getting to the fake suicide part which we'll talk about more in depth i thought Michael was not going to buy it like immediately. But then as the cops describing everything to him, he's just like, okay, okay. That makes makes sense. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I also thought it was interesting too. Anna is not at all scared of Arthur, which is like a cool, like an interesting plot device. It also is necessary because Michael has to talk to her later. Um, Right. Maybe he didn't need to talk to her in person. So, but whatever that, I thought that part was cool. She doesn't, Um, she doesn't get killed though. Right. No, no, Anna's, no. Anna's, well, we don't see her get killed. I don't think she got killed. You can't kill the lead plaintiff in the case against you in a $3 billion case. Like, that might uh, arouse. I, okay, you say that, David, but not only do they kill Arthur and attempt to kill Michael, but the, I, with, okay, so here's the thing, right, dude, is that they make Arthur's death look like a suicide perfectly. And then, and then when they try to kill Michael, they do it in the most like hitman sort of way with a car bomb. Even when the lawyer runs into the des- uh, disposition room and they're like, did you hear? What? Michael Clayton. Car bomb. Car bomb. And I was like, okay. Like they're not no, even no, gonna- 
the one guy was like, holy shit. And I was like, how about, wait, a fucking car bomb? Like, what? <laughs> like, whoa, Michael Clayton was taken out? I'm like, maybe you want to assume that he had a lot of enemies. Maybe he got in too deep with the loan sharks. You know, he had I mean, a gambling he is, problem. He is the fixer. So, yeah, like, but at the, I still was like, I thought the reaction to that might be a little more like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> People are coming at us with car bombs now? Yeah, that's what I would think. And it's like, no, no, not his, like, oh yeah, it was a gas leak and his car just like, it was a Ford Pinto and it exploded or something like that. But it was just like, yeah, someone planted a car bomb and blew him up. Hmm, okay. Right. Um, next, just like adding more, a little more uh, urgency to Michael's plight. He, uh, the guy that he owes money to says that they need the, well, it's funny. He, this was a little confusing, right? So Michael says, I can get you 12. And the guy's like, that's not good enough. They're going to th- tw- they're gonna think 12 is way too low. And then the guy's just like, they talk a little bit back and forth. He's like, you have a week, right? So when I saw that, I took that as like, oh, he needs 75 within a week. And he actually goes to Marty and he asks for the 80 yeah. right away, which is the next scene I want to talk about. But then at the end, when he pays the guy his 75, the guy's he's like, surprised. Oh. he's like, oh, I thought you said 12. And I was like, wait, what the fuck? Well, like, what were you guys talking about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did find um, that kind of weird, but not but very so important. So he goes to see Marty. Marty's like, oh, yeah, he, uh, he built their, their case for them. He's contacted plaintiffs. And then Michael sees the briefcase. He's like, how the fuck did that get there? And Marty's like, oh, I don't know. It just got here. Um, this is like the second like, great dialogue scene to me. And it's, it's George Clooney's just talking about like, you know, ask for the 80K. He's like, I'm 45. I have no equity. You know, this merger happens. No one's going to know who the fuck I am. Um, you know, I wanted to be put on the litigation team. And Marty just comes back. He's like, everyone knows how valuable you are. You might, you might not be valuable in trial. You might not be as good as you thought you were. Like, stick with what you're amazing at. Um, that whole scene, I think, is really cool. The question that this brings up to me, and I guess we can talk about it now, when I was watching this movie as it was going along, and when you have someone as kind of famous as Sidney Pollock, especially like really like big movie fans, I thought the movie was trending towards him being in on almost all of what Tilda, Sw- Tilda Swinton was doing. I, I kind of still think he was. So I, I talked to Garrett about this, and he didn't remember that part of it. He didn't remember seeing it that way. But... So first of all, he gets the briefcase from Tilda Swinton, which that can be either here or there. But then he knows that Arthur has been talking to plaintiffs, which once again could only be from tapping the phones, right? And as Michael figures out later, that's the only possible way that he could have gotten that. Yeah. Then I thought his reaction to Arthur's suicide was a little over the top. Okay. And then the scene where everyone thinks Michael Clayton is dead, his reaction of just like, as he gets the phone call and hangs up was just like reserved, like, okay, it's happened. And so I think like, it is not an unreasonable theory. It's not definitely, it's definitely not spelled out, but I don't think it's an unreasonable theory to think that Marty was in on all of it. Cause he's definitely in on some of it, but 
it may like Tilda may have been keeping him in the loop and saying like, you know, we're in bed together. We're, we're in this together and we need to fix this together. I mean, I can totally and completely see that as a possibility. Um, but you know, I, I also like the fact that it's not spelled out that it does no. kind of keep you guessing about it, you know? Right. And it's, it's something that's someone else who loves this movie could be like, what? No, I don't see it that way. That I don't think that's what they're going for which I think is right. It's a cool thing because it, it doesn't change the movie really. Um, it does maybe make, I don't know, to me it makes Marty a little less interesting if he wasn't involved, but I, uh, either way, I just, it's something that, I think part of it was not remembering the movie. I thought it was something that was clear in the movie. And so I was just waiting for it to be revealed. And then when it was never fully revealed, I was like, I don't know, I still believe it. <laughs> I still think that's what happened. <laughs> Um, I, 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 I really like the relationship the movie builds with, uh, Michael and his son. Henry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I kind of, I, I really like really the whole dynamic with his family versus his job. I thought was worked in beautifully. I, I agree. Um, and this is obviously like you're talking about the the party scene next correct well even yes but even more so at the end of the movie where he calls for his his drugged out brother for help i thought that was really like really well done no and it made sense to it it was it kind of you could say maybe tied up a little nicely but i actually just really appreciate it and i do love the moment between them where timmy's like thankful that he called him yeah because it's like an inroad where he can like make amends because Prior to that, you didn't think Michael was going to give him the opportunity to. Yep. Um, one thing I want to point out too, and this is a more global discussion, but we can have it here now. Um, Marty tells him like, hey, if you by next week get Arthur under control, then everyone here will know your value, right? Right. And this whole movie, I think, is a little bit that, right? Because if you look at the Arthur situation, and then you look at the situation with the dude in the beginning, the hit and run guy. Mm -hmm. Michael doesn't seem great at his job because being a fixer is not about your like ability. It's literally about results. So if you do a great job one time, you're a great fixer. If you don't do a great job, you're not a great fixer. And about and being it, a great fixer, it's like you, you maybe have to like manhunt people and like find them in like impossible situations almost. And I, I love, okay, I can't remember all of them. I do remember this one, but there are a lot of great one-liners in this movie, like just in normal conversations that two characters are having. Right. And then one of the characters will say like just a hell of a zinger. And I was like, oh, that's really good. But one of, one of the ones I really like is, I think it's his brother talking to him. He's like, you might have all the lawyers fool thinking you're a cop and you might have all the cops fool thinking you're a lawyer, but really you're neither. And I was like, that's really good. Like that's because you're right. He's, he, we don't, he has to be good at his job for be on retainer for like 12 years at this ultra super fancy law firm. But the thing about him sucking at his job and at least as the audience, what we see in the two hour film is that basically he's trying to find Arthur for a good majority of the movie. And then he doesn't do anything like greatly detective wise and trying to track him down. He just so happens to be driving down the same street that he's crossing. So a lot of his luck is just, exactly that it's just luck you know right but 
the getting back to what Marty said, like by the end of this week, you, you know, you'll be able to prove how valuable you are. And it's like, so with Arthur and with the hit and run guy, he can't prove it. And then Tilda tries to have him murdered. And he's like, I want to talk about it more at the end too, but he's like, in the end, he proves his value. He proves how amazing he is at this to us. I think he does it before. And to everybody. I think he does it before. Um, I think where we really start to see it in the movie is when he tracks down Anna's number, calls her sister, figures out she's in New York, and then tracks her down from there. And then that conversation between him and Anna about Arthur, about the case. I felt like that was a really good moment where he's proving himself to us as the audience that, oh, he has something here. He really cares about something. And he, he really, because remember for the 80,000, he basically promised Marty to like take care of the Arthur situation. Right. Even, my, even said he sold him out for 80 grand, but then he kind of really took that back at the end. My, my point though, once again, is in, in his line of work, the only things are w- wins and losses, right? It doesn't right. matter how well he did. So in the very end, he won because he brought it all together and, you know, fucked Tilda Swinton over in this, in this case. And so we already talked a little bit about the, the Arthur and uh, Michael Clayton scene when he finds him as he's like driving around with his son. What I think is great also about that scene too, though, is he tells him like, hey, if you call plaintiffs, the plaintiffs in this case, they're going to take everything from you. And, and Arthur immediately is like, how do you know that? How do they know that? And like someone was told him, he's like, Anna wouldn't have done that you're tapping my phone. And like in that instance, Arthur knows for sure his phone's being tapped and Michael knows for sure his phone isn't being tapped, right? With the same like information available, Michael is for sure that his phone hasn't been tapped, that Anna has sold him out because you chased her with your dick out across a parking lot. So of course, Anna was going to tell people that you are calling her constantly. Um, But Arthur knows his relationship with Anna and knows she hasn't said anything and knows he's trying to help her. So he knows the only way they would know that is they have to be tapping his phone. And, and that's what Michael comes to the conclusion with at the end of the movie too, is because, well, he doesn't know, but he knows, right? He asks her like out front, like, okay, who, who have you been telling? And she genuinely is like, I haven't. And he believes her. And at that moment he knows. Um, let me ask you, did you find the relationship between Arthur and Anna weird? Like super weird? Um. Not really. I mean, yeah, he's obviously much older than her. Wait, um, but were they in love? Was it professional? No, it wasn't professional. Now, whether it was mutual, of, well, I think it was a little bit mutual, mutual. But whether it was a intimate love, like of like you know two partners, or whether it was a love of like a father figure for a daughter figure, I don't. They don't get the movie is ambiguous as to that. I think. Yeah. Um. But I didn't really get too creeped out about it because they didn't really let it get. Uh, well, I wasn't. I wasn't trying to be creeped out about it. I guess my my point. My point in bringing it up is that I felt like maybe on Arthur's end, he had an infatuation with her, right? Because he he's been on this case for six years, and her being a main focus on the case that he might have fallen in love with her, on paper, if that makes sense. Um, but then on her end, like he was building a case for her against you North. So maybe she was just kind of like in it just to 
get what she needed out of him, you know, like appreciated, like genuinely appreciated his help, but just saw it kind of no more than that. That yeah, That's I what th- I felt. I think though, as she sort of alludes to the fact that she's getting on the plane to come to New York might mean a little bit more, right? Cause she could have just been like, Hey, just please mail it to me, <laughs> which may have been safer for everyone. Um, and real, the last thing of that Arthur scene, he like, as we already talked about, he like whips out his legal knowledge and throws it on the table and just tells Michael, like, don't fuck with me. Um, I like Michael's like, I'm not the enemy. And Arthur just comes back to him. Well, then who are you? Yeah. Cause like, if you're not the enemy, you sure are acting like the enemy, which is similar to his brother's question of like, you know, you're fooling people, but who, who are you actually, do you even know who you are? I'll tell um, you who he is. He's Michael fucking Clayton. The damn right. He is. The t- the title of the movie um okay the titular character tits titular um i love the recording the u north scene over and over again i uh, the u north commercial over and over again oh, to yeah, then yeah. Call, but i don't understand exactly what his point of doing it was um i should have probably read into it he because i thought it was to drown out right he's recording the commercial to drown out the tap the tap but yeah. it obviously doesn't work because they hear all of it and then he's calling his own voicemail at his own work, which I think, I guess he's letting them know. It's almost, I guess, he's like telling them, hey, I'm about to fuck this whole thing up just to let you know, here's, here's a little warning, which ends up obviously getting him killed. Um, so it's really kind of like not a smart move. No. From Arthur's point, but it is a great scene. And I love the, um, this makes this a superior cancer delivery system. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, another that's another really great line. Um, uh, oh, another great line is when George Clooney is talking to him and he has the arm full of baguettes. And he's like, you know, if you want to do this, if you want to do that, if you want to buy a shit ton of bread, let God be with you. <laughs> that was really, <laughs> really funny, too. Um, and then after this, like, the way that Tilda just won't say kill them, she's just like, can you contain this? Um, okay. So we're at that scene, right? Yeah. So this is this is one of the scenes I, I really, really wanted to talk about. I thought this scene was so well acted. Like you say she won be, uh, Best Supporting for, for this movie. I could see her winning Best Supporting just for this scene alone. And it wasn't even like her acting individually or Vern's acting individually, or the writing individually. It was like all of it together worked in this way that I really enjoyed. It's because she's alluding to killing him, right? And she's, she's panicking about it. She's like, you can tell she hasn't done this. And she's like, really like, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, really like bouncing around on it. Like, I need you to do it this other way this other way is the only way. And if you were to do it this way and Vern was like, yeah, I got it. I understand. We only, we only deal in absolutes and I'm going to talk to my partner and, and I think we got this pretty good. And I'm sitting there and probably Tilda Swinton sitting there thinking, okay, does he, does he get what he's saying? Well, what she's asking him or is he like completely oblivious, but no, he totally gets it. And what I really love about this is that, She's never done this before, so she's acting all panicky about asking to kill a guy. But they do this for a living. 
So because he's acting so nonchalant about it, it's like natural for him. And the fact that it threw me off and we get that payoff that he does like kill him. I, I just, I fucking love that scene. No, it's good too. And he's like, you know, cause she's at first, she's like, Oh, you know, how do we contain this? And he's like, Oh, legally, I don't even know what she would do. And she's like, well, not legally, maybe the other way. And he's like, Oh, the other way. Okay. The other way. We'll do it the other way. Yeah. And I, I can see how you would be like, what the fuck is the other way? <laughs> like, right. Cause, cause she's asking to kill a guy and she's acting like she's asking to kill a guy and he's acting like she's asking him for some weed or something like he's like being real cool about it in the beginning i thought she was getting drugs from from mr Vern. like i i did not know where that part was gonna go um so i guess we should talk about the suicide scene yeah which is kind of interspliced with the dad's birthday um which i also think is a is a great scene because he needs to leave but his brother who's a cop also needs to leave and their their scene in the bedroom is really great dialogue as well too especially because like the brother is trying to stand up for timmy and michael's just like having none of it you know he's like the kids are freaked out the wife is freaked out timmy's in-laws are freaked out our parents freaked out mike's like i don't fucking care and the reason he doesn't care is because he's still cleaning up the mess like timmy's gone and he is specifically like cleaning up the mess for him um and you know the his cop brother is looking at him like oh are you are you gambling he's like no, I'm not gambling. I haven't gambled in a year. He's like, I bet all my money on Timmy and that's why I'm fucking pissed. And so it's like, <laughs> it's a really, really good scene. Um, um, I, I also like the, the moment before that they get into the bedroom and he's like, Hey, I got to go. He's like, you got to go. He's like, yeah, I have a shift. He's like, I got to go. He's like, you have to go. He's like, I have a shift too. <laughs> right. <laughs> I have shifts. Um, I have a damn job. Then the next scene that you just alluded to the, the actual killing scene is done so matter of factly, so precise, so yeah. calm. Yeah. It's just such an unbelievable scene. So um, I guess they tase him first. Right. Now, what did they stick in his mouth? Uh, it was probably something to, it was probably something so he didn't like, one maybe didn't scream too maybe didn't like bite down and like show like any injuries that would have been like oh why does he have this if he just died you know because what they stuck in his toes is just supposed to be almost like a hidden chemical that kills him and makes it seem like he died from an overdose of whatever he normally would take ironic um, if they stuck him with uh the u north shit right <laughs> <laughs> this one carcinogen uh yeah and so I think maybe that's also just like to protect from him, you know, damaging, but also like, you know, if he like bites down on his tongue or something. Um, but yeah, that scene is just, it's obviously very impactful. I think it's sad, but also like you kind of see it coming for Arthur. Like I said, it, the scene previous where he's like locked himself in the, in the bathroom and ran the water is a good foreshadowing of this scene. Because um, I expected him to die here. So I wasn't too sad about him dying there um but it was it's still sad because he was the type of guy who was just trying to do the right thing um especially for a guy who was doing the wrong thing for so long uh and then and then they try to kill michael clayton 
You're jumping a little ahead, but yeah, we'll get to it. Um, what I want to talk about next, and I talked, we talked about it a little bit, but the party that they have at the bar after Michael finds out. So Michael has, you know, gets the call about Arthur, talks to the cop. He believes it's a suicide. And then, you know, he finds Marty and Barry at the bar, right? And Barry is like too busy taking phone calls. And Marty's just like that dumb son of a bitch. I didn't even get to talk to him one last time. Um, and Michael goes on about, he's like, he didn't leave a note. And, you know, uh, Marty's like, well, it, it could have been an accident. Um, yeah. You know, because he agrees. He's like, Arthur wouldn't do anything without writing a fucking memo about it. Um, but then Michael's like, well, it couldn't have been, you know, he doesn't have accidents. And, you know, Marty's just like, well, people are incomprehensible. That was like another one of the points, as I described earlier. But the way he like was just kept defending that this could obviously have been a suicide or an accident. Yeah, that was another part to me that pointed to maybe he was in on at least Arthur, right? Yeah, which you could say, like, as another theory, he knew about Arthur, he was in on Arthur, and that part makes sense. But then he gets the phone call about Michael Clayton, and he knows Tilda did this, and he's like, Well, I didn't fucking want that to happen, but now it's like, I can't have, I can't undo it. We're in bed with these people, I, you know, just it happened, whatever. Um, but I think either way, like this scene does a little bit put you in the mind of like, why is this scene in there? But maybe to point at Marty or the other possibility is to just kind of show Michael's questioning of what happened and to have like a foil to throw off the questions to. But also, I mean, I agree with you, but it also shows Michael's motivation that he's not like settled with this and he wants to pursue this like a little bit farther which I thought was the fact that I do, like I mentioned before, I really love the relationship that the movie builds between him and his family. Cause at that moment he goes back to his brother, the cop brother to like ask to like go and investigate Arthur's apartment. Uh, that isn't exactly happening yet. You keep wanting to skip ahead. I just like remembering the, the important parts of the film, David. Um, one other thing, though, that sort of does hurt my theory a little bit, um, but maybe not, is Marty starts talking about how he's known, he's known Arthur for 30 years, and he's like, I feel really bad saying this, and Michael's like, you can say it. We caught a lucky break. Um, but I think even as a guilty person involved, Marty could have said something like that. But that is like, it's an interesting line either way because either if marty's not involved it's just like the the mixed emotions of this guy was fucking up our lives and is the money we're going to get from this more important than the 30 years of friendship i had with arthur or the 30 years knowing arthur um because at the end of the day if this firm even went down is that going to affect marty's life in any way financially probably not um so that, 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 i mean would it have affected the merger Probably. Oh, it absolutely would. That's what I'm saying. The, the firm would have gone away, probably. But, you know, he's made, Marty has probably made millions and millions from this firm. He's pr pretty set. Um, and then the last thing from this scene is Michael Clayton finds out that U North is, is settling the case, um, which is what potentially sends him to go talk to Anna. He, he figures out that Anna is in town by talking to the sister. Yeah, And then he goes to see Anna and the Vern and his buddy uh, are there watching. 
Yeah, this actually reminds me of a part at the end that that has confused me. So I, I do want to talk about that. I don't want to forget. I don't want to forget to talk to you about it. Um, but then, doesn't he investigate Arthur's place before he talks to Anna? No. So he meets Anna at the hotel room. And this is where he confirms that she didn't tell anyone. So then he knows he knows that there had to have been tapping of, of Arthur's phones, right? Right. And he, he doesn't know why Anna was brought there, but the audience, we know it's this memo 229. That's why she was brought there because he was going to give her a copy of it to win the case. And she even says he was going to give me something that would have that would have completely won the case for us. Oh, and then that leads him to the apartment to try to find the thing to win the case well um, he just he just wants to investigate further because now there's some fishy shit going on of why arthur wouldn't have killed himself if this woman that he's what in love with or infatuated with was brought to new york he wouldn't have killed himself as she's on her way like so it makes even less sense to him now and that's why he wants to look into it further but because he stopped at anna's who was being followed by the verns i'm just going to call them the verns um that's fine. Now they're following him to Arthur's apartment and they call the cops on him, obviously. Um, but before they do, he sees the horse picture in the book and then he finds that, that printing receipt uh, yep. for, what was it, like 900-something bound copies of, of the, uh, the memo? Roman Conquer, yeah. Um, I do like how his, his brother yells at him. You, you talked about that, but it's like, he, he says to his brother, like, who called it in? Think. And his brother's like, I don't fucking care about that. Like, what do you mean? Why, do, why does that matter to me? He's like, you, you know, you fucked me over here. Um, and then you talked about, obviously, like your favorite line from that. Well, yeah, but it, it kind of conju- like works really perfectly with that because he's like almost coming off as a conspiracy theorist, right? He's like, yeah, but... I was in there for like a second and who would have called the cops on me and no one saw me. And I, it, it would, it's like, obviously I'm being spied on. Obviously someone is tapping my phones or something is going on bigger than us. And his brother is like, I, it, maybe I, nah, I don't care. I don't give a shit. You did. This. You know, it's, it's funny too, is because of his job, because of what he does, he's more perfectly placed than Marty, than his brother who are both in, you know, one's in the legal field, one's a cop to see these, like to see these connecting dots of why things don't make sense. Right. Right. He's like, no one would have called the cops within the amount of time I was in there. It, it makes zero sense. And his brother's like, well, I don't fucking, I mean, someone could have seen you. And he's like, I was there. I know, I know I've done, I've clearly done this before. <laughs> um, right. The next scene is him picking up the summons of conquests. Uh, and realms. they're being like what realms and conquests. Well, no, the, this one is called Summon to Conquest. Um, really? It's like the, oh, yeah, it's like that. a play on words. The book, Realm, it's Realm of Conquest or Realm of Conquest. That was the book the son gave. He just did a play on words with it. Smart. Um, what I don't understand is he grabs one copy. Obviously, I understand Michael not wanting to carry a how did the, copy. How did Vern get a copy? How did he get a copy, but not all of them? <laughs> like, why grab one instead of like the 25 boxes? Well, because I'm thinking, like, I mean, first of all, to move 25 boxes without being unnoticed, you could grab one. Like, you could steal one and be unnoticed. I guess guess. that's maybe grab one right then and take it to Tilda and figure out what our next move is. 
But at the same time, go back that night and grab all of them. I guess, though, too, and I, I'm solving this for myself. If you take out Michael, he's the only one that knows the worth of these. So that's why at that point you have to take out Michael. Yeah, because at, at least I, I don't know. It, I'm guessing like an Office Depot or Staples, if they have like 900 copies of something and no one picks them up for like weeks or months, they just burn them or get rid of them, you know? Right. Um, I like how Michael goes straight to Marty and is like, hey, you know, I've, I think I found something. Arthur found something that this case is terrible. And Marty's like, of course it is. I knew from day one that this was an awful case, but we need, it's $9 million that we need to be paid or we go under and the merger's done. Um, and so it's just, it's also like more to the like, Marty is obviously not painted as a good person, but it's more painting him, painting him more badly, like with that part of it. Like, yeah, we took this, we took this case just for the money, even though we knew they were in the wrong. Yeah. Um, and I love, you know, they give him the 80,000, but they tell him he's got to sign a three-year contract. And then Barry comes in, he's like, you're going to sign a confidentiality agreement. You know, um, this 80K, you know, feels a little bit like a shakedown. And he's like, if this was a shakedown, Barry, I would have come straight to you. And it'd be for a lot more than 80K. Yeah, I love that line. Um, uh, all, all, like, the best lines are Michael dunking on Barry. <laughs> Really, Michael dunking on anyone. But Barry got two of but the Barry best specifically. Um, next, he pays the dude is 75, and then we're back to the beginning of the movie. Boom, boom, boom. Um, okay, so... And like I mentioned before, him talking about the guy who did the hit and run is much better in context now because obviously it's the least of his worries. It's just all the shit that he's been through in the last four days. Um, and then he gets to the horse and the car blows up. And I love, cause I would have never thought of this to like throw your cell phone and your watch and your cufflinks into the car. Cause everything else would burn except, I don't know, you're missing a human body, but I guess that doesn't matter. Let's not think about that too much. Um, yeah. But I mean, those things at least buy him time, right? It, like they, if it burns, if it burns enough, it's going to burn the body completely, right? Like you can burn a body completely. But I guess those... no, the bones, right? No, there's cremation. I don't know. I guess I guess you're right. Um, Did you just discover cremation? I just discovered no. But listen, uh, the only new kind of perspective we get on this scene happening again for us is the Verns following Michael in and out of like Upper State New York through the farmland. And forest and side roads West and stuff Chester. Like and and everything like that and they lose him and then I love he's like oh fuck it let's just blow him up and then the explosion happens just like across the river behind them a little bit no yeah so that that part's all great because it explains why the GPS was acting up but the trying to like get it to work and like he's like you have eight seconds seven so, like get the fuck out of there and then he's like am I blown am I blown he's like just keep walking just keep walking like that part is all really tense even though you know that he like how it plays out um there's a really important point here and it's a it's a a point about george clooney he's a bad runner he's not not as good as tom cruise he always looks weird when he runs it's like oh it's very overacted and very like 
there's a lot of extra body movement. It's not smooth. Yeah, but I wonder if that's done like purposefully. I don't know because you know you see him run a little bit in like kind of his funny like Cohen brother stuff, and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, he's just doing that for comedy. But then you see it in this, and you're like, oh, okay. There's like an actual issue here. <laughs> All right, I need to pay more closer attention. I mean, he, granted, he probably doesn't have the the action run down as well as like Tom Cruise does, right? No, yeah. For, I mean, Tom Cruise takes his his running craft very seriously. Although, speaking of Tom's and and running, I I do enjoy the way Tom Hanks runs. I can't. I, I don't have it. I don't have it memorized. Forrest Gump. All right. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. As a, that's a side note. Um, now we talk about the very, very ending. Um, yeah, I, I mean, so we we already covered a, a lot of this, right? The people Pretty talking much. about the people talking about the car bomb, Marty's yep. reaction, which is very weird. Yep. Uh, Mickey being very thankful. Yep. We get to Tilda explaining the settlement, um, which oh, it's, is it's great. Skin, uh, it makes your skin crawl, right? Just the if we keep it under 600 million, the tax write-off basically pays for it. And you're just like, Oh my God, just so good. Although like 600 million divided by 486 people. No, you know, it's not great. Um, it's like 1.25 around there. How many people? 486. Wow. It's actually, one million two hundred and thirty-four thousand, some odd change. Yeah, I'm good at division. Um, yeah, that scene is just gross. Like, just really gross to watch. Um, and then as she walks out, like, just like coming off the high because she, as we know, doesn't like public speaking. Right. Pretty freaky, huh? Arthur's running around here somewhere too. <laughs> <laughs> I especially like it because you think, oh, she's going to walk through this set of doors and he's going to be there. No. Then she walks another set of doors and he's going to be there. No. And then she turns around. And in like the best George Clooney fashion, like, all right, the guy doesn't know how to run, but he knows how to lean on a wall like a fucking champ. He knows how to look like George Clooney is what he knows how to do. <laughs> and so he's just there and he's like, yeah, he says that line. Pretty freaky, freaky, huh? Um, and then he delivers it in the best way possible, but he's like, you idiot. Like, you try to kill me. I, you could have paid me off super easily. He's like, like I, I'm not the guy you kill. I'm the guy you buy. Yeah. It's such a fucking good line. He's like, you kill me? You try to kill me? <laughs> like, you... And he keeps coming back to that. And I was like, it's so funny. Cause it's like, yeah, if you think about it really, why does that happen? Like, cause he's getting close to breaking the case. It's like, and your first intention is to just off him. Yeah. Because Marty already knows. Right. And this is Marty's guy, Marty's guy that he sent to you. Um, which maybe Marty's involved, but what, one thing that this does bring about at least that part of it, cause yeah, he is acting to get her to admit something right but it also makes you wonder is is this some character development is this like the growing of a conscience for michael clayton or is this this bitch tried to kill me so she has to go down you know no no i took it as completely growing as a consciousness like this is his arc right as a character this is the moment where he he's a gambler he likes his money he gets paid to do shady shitty stuff and this is like 
him asking for 10 million knowing he could easily get it and then basically sets the whole thing up that he's not getting shit he's just doing it as a setup um and yeah, in a way I, he's just basically walking away from 10 million dollars uh and then being perfectly content that he did the right thing i thought was awesome yeah and there's also too though like you need to put her out of business because if someone has the money to hire people to kill you like you're never going to be safe um I do like how she tries to say, like, the suit's over, we have a deal. And he's like, oh, really? I didn't, I didn't realize you signed the checks already. Like, she's just like, I know how this works. Like, quit fucking with me. And, you know, and like, is there a number? And he's like, 10. And she's like, 10, 10 what? And he's like, okay, 5 million. She's like, oh, five's easier. And he's like, but then another 5 million for the 486 people you killed. I love and it. She's like, he, yeah. she's like, she's like, oh, but I don't know. And he's like, do I look like I'm negotiating? Like I gave you a number, like this is the number. <laughs> right. And now when he said, he, when he said 10, I thought he, so I thought the purpose of being vague on the like 10 was like 10 fucks I give about you and your, or something like, I thought he was going to be cheeky about it. But the reason he did that, I took it as like, he wanted he didn't want to say that that it was ten million dollars as a payoff. He wanted her to cut, like complete that sentence for the for the record for the recording. Um, and then I really love him just taking the picture of her. Like I need to remember this moment. Well, he also too like is like I need you to say it right now. The ten you're gonna pay me ten million for this da -da -da. like because that is for purposes of the record. But then. Don in the back, just like such an idiot. He's like, someone call security. Get this man out of here. Oh, good police. Please get this man out of here. Okay, so here's my question. This is, this is, this is what was bugging me about this scene. Don is her lawyer? No. For the disposition? No. No. Because Don, Don, Don acts like he has no idea who Michael Clayton is, but wouldn't he? So Don was her. He was the general counsel for U North. He retired basically, or was brought up. He is now a board member. So he is like runs U North and she took over his job. Oh, he was the guy in the beginning next to her in the interview. Yes. Oh, okay, so, okay. She, so he's like her mentor and also like the former her basically. So he um, would have had no idea who the fuck Michael Clayton was. He didn't because she was trying to do everything on her own. Not because Don would have disapproved of it, but because this is her job now and she needed to prove herself. And she was very, she mentions it in the speech, like, oh, the first few months, you're very like wary and are you doing everything right? But you get used to it, but she really hasn't. And especially the, the, the bad parts of it, right? She's very, she's not great at it. Right. Yeah. Especially the it, public speaking part. And you didn't mention the I'm Shiva, the, the God of death part, which is- I was getting there. I'll let you do it. Say it. Well, how does okay? So, so George Clooney responds to her with like, "I'm Shiva, the god of death." Um, no, I think Don asks who the fuck he is as he's walking away. That's I was asking. I was going to say, what was the lead up to that answer? But that that was right. Don was like, "Who are you?" And he's like, "I'm Shiva, the god of death." And uh, it was a perfect callback to to Arthur, in a way that it was like, "Hey, you killed this man, and he and I got you. You." bitch correct 
Um, I wonder. I wonder how much she's sweating now in in federal prison. She's not a real person. Um, did you notice that this movie ends almost the exact same way that The Descendants ends, with just footage of like? So The Descendants ends with them watching TV on the couch and us just watching them eat ice cream. Yeah. And this movie ends with him riding in the back of a cab, just like rolling film on it, like as the credits are rolling. Like they end the exact same way. Yeah, and I thought that was kind of cool because you kind of see this like kind of smirk come across his face, like he's kind of satisfied in 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 what he's done. Um, no, yeah, ag- well, again, character development. Well, no, absolutely, because you see like the weight of everything that has just happened, kind of rolling off of him, and him like coming down from the high of, of what he just did. Um, so I think it's actually much more effective in this, and it's done for different different purposes, obviously. Um, but no, yeah, I thought it, uh, it was really great in this. Um, at the end of it, I don't know if you watched all the way through the credits. Um, but at the very, very end credits, it was like no one in this um, movie or like everyone in this movie was a fictional character. No real names or blah, blah, blah was used for the actual depiction of any actual case lawsuit or federal crimes, hap- blah, 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 right? And then it got me thinking like, oh, is this actually a real? Because, you know, every time they put some shit like that in the in the back of a credit, your the first inclination is to be like, oh, was this actually like a like a real case? Yeah, I mean, like, as I alluded to earlier in a it was a November 2020 interview, Clooney said that it was based off of the Ford Pinto case um, and that there was an internal memo saying that the car was unsafe. So I didn't look into it further. Um, if that's not true, talk to George Clooney. I will talk to George Clooney um, about that and, and that alone. Um, the other, the other thing is, is that the Ford Pinto case is about the car exploding. Right. Right. Um, what kind of car was Michael Clayton driving? Mercedes. Oh, never mind. It was the Mercedes they used in the Devil Wears Prada. Like the, the, the same Mercedes? The same exact one. And apparently they, in that movie, for some reason, it, I've never seen The Devil Wears Prada, but it had to be cut in, oh, it had to be cut in two for certain shots for the movie. Uh-huh. And they welded it back together just so they could blow it up. So the one he's driving around is not that car, but the one they blow up is that car. Oh, I got you. I got what you're saying. They, they, used, they used two cars that looked the exact same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Devil Wears Prada, next episode? I thought we already agreed what we were doing next. Um, I didn't look up a lot of like the casting stuff, by the way, but one thing I found interesting is this was originally offered, uh, Michael Clayton, that part was offered to Denzel Washington. And okay. he turned it down because he didn't want to work with a first-time director. And actually, I think George Clooney originally turned it down, but then came back uh, and decided to do it. Obviously, it would have been a great movie with Denzel, but I, I think I like it with Clooney a little better. Like I, this is like probably one of my favorite Clooney parts. Definitely my favorite like serious Clooney role because obviously yeah. he does a bunch of like like I said Cohen stuff, the Ocean's movies. He's amazing in, but they're not like the same tone. They're not. They're a different movie. Um, Speaking of is, uh, Clooney and, and Cohen, I I really need to watch Brother Where Where Art Thou. Oh, Brother Where Art Thou. He's also really great, and I think it might still be on Netflix. Um, Hail Caesar. 
I've seen it, though. I didn't know that. Yeah, it is really good. I really enjoyed that. Josh Brolin's in that, too. I'm digressing. Um, Yeah, so I really like this film. I, I know that we kind of talked about some issues we both had, but overall, um, great film. And I think for me, at least, what made it so memorable was those last 12 minutes um, with that wrap-up scene between him and, and Tilda Swinton. No, absolutely. I mean the dialogue, the way it's acting, like, so that, you know, like I said, like three of the main actors in this were nominated. The script was nominated. It was nominated for best picture. Um, only Tilda Swinton ended up winning anything. And that's only because this came out in a year where two juggernauts of like, there will be blood and no country for old men came out. And it's like, if those two aren't there, like this is like a very worthy movie to win a ton of those awards. At that point, David, I would have just delayed the film. The, the release <laughs> of the film. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, the, the next year was a, a, like a relatively weak year. So yeah, exactly. Cool. So yeah. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of I Finally Watched. This is David. And this is Alon. And I finally watched Michael Clayton. <laughs>